Let's turn, please, to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we find one of the two birth narratives of Jesus in the Scriptures. Mark's Gospel doesn't cover it at all. Luke's Gospel does. There's actually more detail in Luke's Gospel than even in Matthew's Gospel. And John's Gospel actually kind of blows that all apart and goes back pre-foundation of the world and talks about how Jesus existed before time. He's uncreated. And then He came into the world as light. Sort of more of a theological view of Jesus' incarnation. And just to explain that word, to be incarnate, it means that we, we have flesh. Jesus became incarnated. But here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18-25, through 25, we find Matthew's record of Jesus' incarnation. How He took on flesh. And so today we are going to discuss and explore what God's Word has for us. And this passage, I believe, presents to us that Jesus is our Emmanuel. Matthew will clarify for us that that title means that God is with us. This was a promise that had been made to God's people over seven centuries before this came to pass. And if Jesus is our Emmanuel, if God has come down to us, if He has become incarnate, and if He took on flesh and became one of us, then, then these two truths, I think, are pretty evident. The first is that God is with us. And secondly, and more importantly, God is, is for us. Jesus could have taken on flesh as a, a human adult. And He could have come and fully arrayed glory with legions of angels as a conquering king, slaying all of those that had turned in rebellion against God. And every single human that has ever lived would be against Him. In other words, Jesus could have come to be with us, but He didn't have to be for us. The truth of the matter is, as we walk through life, we learn over time to, to evaluate our relationships. We're, we're doing this right now as a, as a merging of two congregations. We're learning how we feel about each other. So let's just lay our cards on the table. Uh, us North Pointers, we want to know that you like us. It's kind of simple, but it's true, right? And, and vice versa, I would think that you would want to know that, that we like you. We're, we're evaluating relationships. We do this in our marriages. You did this when you began dating, right? When I met my wife, it was right around Christmas time of 1994. Um, I was an incredibly wise 18-year-old. I thought I had the world by the tail and knew everything. And the night after I met her, I told my parents, I'm going to marry her. 
Well, that was kind of like more wishful thinking because I thought she was way, way out of my league. And she is, for those of you who are saying, she is, Lee. I know, I know. She came back home in the summer. She had been away at college, and, and then we started actually dating. And in that dating period, you're, you're feeling each other out, right? And you, you use words, right? Like back when you were little kids, you wrote notes. Like there's country songs about this. You, you send notes to each other, and you check yes or no, do you like me, right? But you kind of do this as, as adults. You kind of play that little dance. You're like, do you like me? Do I like you? And then eventually it goes from like to love and so forth. And, but even after you get married, you do this, right? When, when you have a, a disagreement or a conflict which, which may or may not arise in normal marriages, you, you evaluate each other, you, you feel each other out after you've had the conflict. Are we good, right? You do this with your friends. And of course, more importantly, we do this with God. We wonder, we speculate. Is the Creator for me? Because if He's not... I'm in trouble. But Advent, Christmas, the promise that Jesus is Emmanuel not only proclaims to us that God came down to be with us, which frankly could be really, really terrifying, but that in fact He is for us. So let's read the text together, Matthew, 18, Matthew chapter 1. Verses 18-25, to we'll talk about the primary thing this teaches and we'll tease out some implications. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that's like a serious engagement period. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And may God bless to us the reading of His Word. When we have time to slow down a little bit, which this moment allows us to do that, and read a text like this, it, it feels a little bit like we're walking on holy ground. Like, like we've been given insight into an incredibly momentous occasion. In, in fact, if we take the, the entirety of Jesus' incarnation into account, His birth, His life, death, His resurrection, this, this 30-year moment was the most momentous occasion of all of human history. This is what human history had been hurtling toward, and it is what we look back upon. It, it is the watershed moment. It is the, it's the Rubicon moment. 
when God came down, when He was ready to be with us. And I think what this text proclaims to us is, is this sort of simple thought. The incarnation of the Son of God is proof of God's sovereign grace. This text, if nothing else, clarifies for us that grace always flows downhill. It's always coming down to us. From heaven to lost people. To to willful rebels. When I was a child, my parents would always take us out west to the Rockies. So we would sort of split vacations between Colorado one year and we'd go to Wyoming the next year. My favorite place that we went as a child was to Yellowstone National Park, which is up in the far northwest corner of, uh, of Wyoming. We have now started taking our kids there. We love it. It's great. One of the really fascinating things about Yellowstone National Park are the waterfalls there. Have you ever been to Yellowstone? A few of you? It's one of the things you go see when you go to Yellowstone. You go see uh, the waterfalls. I was watching a special not long ago, and there's actually this group of specialists that study topographical maps, and they're always looking for new waterfalls because there's so much elevation change out there in Yellowstone. They're always discovering new ones, which is fascinating. So as elevation changes and water starts to flow after the spring melt, because Yellowstone gets tons and tons of snowfall, then these waterfalls form. And they're always discovering new ones. It's pretty fascinating. Some of them are small. Some of them are grand and, and beautiful. But it's a reminder that because of gravity, because of elevation change, water's always going to flow downhill. It's the way it works. And that's, that's grace. Grace is God's favor upon people who do not deserve it. And grace always flows downhill. It comes from the source of goodness and love. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ, when He took on flesh and became a man, and parenthetically, we have to ask the question, why did He do that? The angel said to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, that he would save his people from their sins. In fact, that's what his name actually means. In the Old Testament, this would have been the name that we know as Joshua. Yahweh, the Lord, saves. Jesus' very name means that he had a purpose, he had a mission. He wasn't going to go to a career fair when he was 18 or 22 and pick his vocation. This was intended for him. It was, it was why he became a man. He became a man so that he could keep all of the laws of God that we would refuse and be unable to keep. And then he would die as our substitute, not because he deserved punishment, because he didn't. He had never broken a law. Never lied never lusted, was never greedy, never had a selfish moment in the entirety of His incarnation. But He was punished. The natural question arises, why? He didn't do anything. He was innocent. Such a conclusion is true. He was. 
He's punished not for his own transgressions of the law, but for ours. The billions upon billions of sins that humanity, all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve have committed. And he had to be a real man to do that. To keep those laws. And to die a real death and take our punishment. But of course, we know the rest of the story of the Gospel that Jesus Christ who died in our place did not stay dead. He was raised victorious over sin and death and offers us His righteousness. And we cannot earn it. Remember, grace flows downhill. We can only receive it by faith. The incarnation of Jesus is proof of not just God's grace, but of His sovereign grace. Who did all this? Who initiated all this? Who brought all of this to pass? It was God. And nothing can stop the downhill flow of His grace. The incarnation of the Son of God is proof of God's sovereign grace. Therefore, first implication, we may live without fear or shame. Joseph had the potential here humanly speaking, to mess this up. The text tells us that Mary was found to be with child. We know from Luke's account of Jesus' birth that she had spent at least a few months with her cousin Elizabeth who bore John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who would be the forerunner, sort of the prophet of Jesus' public ministry. It is then reported to Joseph that the woman to whom he is engaged is pregnant. Now, did Joseph and Mary have a conversation? We don't know the details. Sometimes there's those gaps in Scripture where we don't get all the details and we really, really want to know. Like We know very little about Jesus' childhood, right? We know very little about the discussions that went on between Joseph and Mary. We know very little about Joseph himself. The Gospel writers tend to cut to the chase when Jesus was an adult and preached the Gospel and performed miracles and then died and was resurrected. It, it, it cuts to the most important stuff. In whatever way, whether Joseph saw Mary when she came back from her visit with her cousin or it was reported to him, it was reported that, that she was pregnant. Back then, whenever you got engaged, it wasn't like it is now. So, for instance, you can go to the diamond seller or Zales or K Jewelers or whatever, pick out a ring, put it on her finger, and sometime before you actually say, I do, and walk the aisle and spend way too much money on a wedding, you can back out. And everybody will be a little sad, right? You'll have to tell the story again and again, but it's not that big of a deal. Back then, engagement, betrothal was a lot more serious than that. They did arranged marriages back then. So it was common as a young man's family. Joseph could well have been a teenager at this point. Mary, perhaps even a young teenager. A young man's family would correspond or usually talk to another family and say, we think our two kids would be a good match. We know each other. This could produce good grandchildren for us and provide heirs for us. And they would arrange this marriage. Joseph and Mary had their marriage arranged. And unless an actual divorce decree 
was written, they couldn't break off the engagement. It was much more serious. Now, the wedding itself was an actual ceremony, and then they would come together and begin living together and all the implications of that. But, but this was a serious thing, which is why Joseph took this so seriously. So, the whispers had begun about Mary. Because we have younger kids in here today, I won't go too deeply into that, but, but you can imagine the whispers that were going on. And likely, because people didn't know the whole story when Mary had been away, there would have been whispers that Joseph, perhaps, was the one who was complicit in this. After all, such a thing, a child born to a virgin, had never happened before. There was not a precedent for this. So no matter how much Mary protested or Joseph protested, no one would have believed So, Joseph wanted to do two things. He already loved Mary, and he did not want to treat her harshly. He didn't want to put her to shame, according to verse 19. So, he resolves to divorce her quietly. It was possible back then to just get a divorce decree from a couple of witnesses, and then you could kind of keep it hush-hush. But Joseph, likewise, not only wanted to treat her with kindness, he also wanted to protect his own integrity. Because people, as you would expect, were blaming him for what had happened. And back then, especially as you go back to the Old Testament, when a woman was found to be with child out of wedlock, she could be stoned. That custom had largely fallen out of practice by the first century, but legally speaking, that could have happened. And Joseph didn't want anything to do with that. So he has this, he has this conundrum. He has this problem. He loves Mary, Maybe he sort of buys her story because he knows her character, but it seems like a far-fetched story, right? And then, on the other hand, he wants to protect his own character. But the angel says to him, who appears to him in the dream, Joseph, son of David, because Joseph had, had rights to the throne, as Rick preached to us last week from verses 1-17. through 17, Joseph's line had come from the house of David, the tribe of Judah, and he had legal rights to the throne in Israel. By this time, the Romans had set up sort of puppet kings and it wasn't really flowing down through the line of David anymore, but, but Joseph had rights. And so the angel comes to him in verse 20 and says, Joseph, son of David, that's recognizing his rightful claim to, to uh, royalty, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe Mary had gotten word to Joseph about this. This was her claim. Because in Luke's account of this, an angel also comes to Mary, not in a dream, and proclaims to her that this is going to happen. So perhaps Mary, you would think, had told Joseph this. And Joseph, I'm sure, was torn. Is this true or is it not true? But now God sends a messenger. That's what the term angel actually means. Angels are messengers. A messenger comes down from heaven. Again, the direction is very intentional. It's coming from God supernaturally by His power, by His design, and says to him, indeed, Mary's claim is true. She has not been unfaithful. She has not been unholy. What is in her is the most holy thing that has ever been put together. He turns the table. The angel says to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And for Joseph himself, God's message 
to him was, don't be ashamed of your beloved. And don't be ashamed of what I'm calling you to. This life, if it's anything, is a test of whether or not we can make it when we're constantly racked by fear and lots and lots of shame. We all have it. Really, the question is not, are you a person who is fearful or are you a person who bears shame, but, but what kind of fear and what kind of shame do you bear? All of us have it. Some of us are afraid of kind of silly things, horror movies, spiders, snakes, the dark, and then more serious things, relationships, people, men, women, and go on and on. But over time, if we've lived in this world long enough, we've been knocked around enough, we're afraid of stuff. And if nothing else, we're afraid of what we don't see and what we can't control. All of us are like this. This is one of the reasons why a lot of us act out. When a person acts out and says things and does things that they, that they shouldn't be doing, you can almost mark it down that there's some kind of fear inside of them. Fear of losing control. Fear of losing influence. Fear of, of not being able to take care of themselves. All of us have all kinds of fears. Joseph was afraid. He was afraid of what people would think of him. He lived in a pretty small village. And you really couldn't hide. You live in a large metropolis. You can, you can hide and nobody knows who you are. You're kind of nameless and faceless. Not where Joseph grew up. Not where he lived. This would have followed him around. And shame. Shame of a bad reputation. Shame of things we've done. All of us have it. But Jesus took on flesh to come down and, and deal with our fear. John says in his first epistle that those who fear are not made perfect in love because perfect love casts out fear. What happens as we grow in our, our confidence in Jesus over time, fear begins to be pushed out and we can deal with our shame. And the truth of the matter is we have real shame. We've done lots and lots of bad things and no one this morning is exempted from that. And not just shame from things far gone, which, which can be deep. Things we did with our bodies. Things we, we did with other people. Lives, perhaps, that we extinguished in one way or another. I mean, some of us have, have dark marks in our past. And, and even though we know that God has forgiven us, we carry that around. But it can be, it can be now. Things we've done recently. Things that, that we've done that have surprised us that we thought we had left in the past. So it can be echoes from the past. It can be patterns from the past. Fear and shame are inevitable, but they don't have to crush us. If the Son of God, eternal Deity, came down and took on flesh to be with us and to prove that God is for us, we do not have to be controlled by fear and shame. So in Advent season, I want to remind you that because Jesus became a man and He came to be with us and He came to prove that God is for us, though fear and shame are inevitable, they don't have to define your story. 
We will not take time to turn here today, but I commend to you the reading of Isaiah chapters 7-9. through This is the prophecy that the angel refers to in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The promise of Emmanuel. There was a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was scared of three other kings. The Assyrian king named Tiglath-Pileser and the two other kings, the king of Damascus and the king of the northern kingdom. Those two kings wanted Judah, Ahaz was the king of Judah, to form an alliance with them so they could stand against the Assyrian Empire, which was threatening to just crush them. Ahaz didn't really know what to do. Ahaz was scared. Ahaz was worried for his own throne. He was worried for his own country. He was willing to make unhealthy alliances and not trust God. So the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, ask for a sign and we'll give it to you. It can be high. It can be grand. But ask for it and God will give it to you to prove that He'll be faithful to you. And you don't have to make alliances with these foreign kings who will draw your heart away from me. God was worried about pure devotion from Ahaz and from the Judean people. But Ahaz sort of plays this false piety card and says, well, I don't want to do that. I won't ask God for that. And God says through Isaiah the prophet, I will give you a sign. His name will be Emmanuel. It will be a child. And this will be proof that God will do amazing, supernatural, sovereignly gracious things for His people. Later on in chapter 9, this is the familiar text that we often read. It was read to us last week in Advent season. There will be a child born to us and His name will be called the Mighty God, a Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace. This child will turn into a royal and divine figure that could not have been possibly fulfilled by any normal human. What Isaiah was saying is that one day God would send a sign to His people. He would be a real child born to a real woman in a miraculous fashion. But He wouldn't just be a gentle baby. He wouldn't just be this little cuddly thing that we sort of coo at. He would turn into a real man who would be fully divine and possess limitless power and wisdom and the ability to rescue people from their sin. So I encourage you to read through Isaiah chapters 7-9, through which, by the way, as I referenced earlier, were prophesied around 730 years before this came to pass in Matthew's Gospel. The angel declares to Joseph that this promise that was given over seven centuries before is now being fulfilled. God had delayed until this moment when He brought heaven down to earth. Grace flowed downhill. These verses are read to us earlier by Marty from Galatians chapter 4. The text says to us, when the fullness of time had come in God's own wisdom, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That same text tells us that because God has done this through His Son, we can relate to Him through the Father as our dear Father. Not racked by fear, Not governed by shame, but by knowing that we are dear children of the Almighty God. And that's why Jesus took on flesh. 
The incarnation of the Son of God is proof of God's sovereign grace. So, first, we may live without fear or shame. Second, we may live in freedom from sin's curse. Jesus, as I've already said to you, His very name proclaims that to us. God, Yahweh, saves. No one else can. Why did Jesus come primarily? To to be a good example to us, sure. To teach us how to be kind to each other, sure. But Jesus primarily came to deal with our debts. With, With that which separated us from God. So, because Jesus took on flesh and came to be with us and came to prove that God is for us, That was accomplished by taking care of our curse. That's why Jesus came. When we receive Jesus by faith, because we have nothing to offer Him, we can't barter with Him. When we come to Him in faith, abandoning any sense of self-righteousness or contribution, He grants us His righteousness. Then two things happen. Number one, we are freed from sin's penalty. God will not condemn us. It's like, a, it's like a legal declaration. We were guilty, and now we're not. But not because we bought God off, and we can't. Because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and grants us His righteousness. So we are freed from sin's penalty, condemnation. Secondly, we are freed from sin's power. In other words, you don't have to sin anymore. So let's get a little interactive again, right? Because I know we're getting sleepy. Um, we're freed from sin's penalty when we receive Jesus, right? No condemnation. But though we're freed from sin's power, we still sin. So how many of you have sinned this week? I mean, come on, everybody put your hands up. A ton! More than you know. More than you know. So part of being freed from sin's curse is being freed from sin's penalty, but also being freed from sin's power. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Him, you don't have to sin. But you do, which brings up the third thing. We still live in the presence of sin. Until Jesus returns in His second advent and takes us to be with Him and and refashions everything, we will be tempted to sin. We will struggle with sin. You don't have to but we do. Jesus came to free us from sin's curse. God was our judge, and now He, if we have received Jesus, is our dear Father. Think of the, think of the transaction there. Think of the, think of the transformation there. We were under His wrath, and now we are the objects of His love. That's what the incarnation is all about. And not only has He freed us from the penalty of sin, just to to make a really fine point here, brothers and sisters, we can make progress in this life. Now, now we will still sin until the grave. But we don't have to. There's no such thing as being able to say to someone when you have sinned, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You wanted to do it. I want to sin. But one of the things that we learn over time once we've been at this Christian life for a while is that the sins that we commit always create messes. And they're never good. 
and it always leaves a bitter aftertaste, right? The, the initial sweet taste of sin may be very alluring, but it never is ultimately satisfying. And this is one of the reasons why we do discipleship. We do discipleship to point you back to Jesus to help you find grace from Him so that you may grow in your faith and choose Him rather than the world. Jesus came to free us from sin's curse. The angel references Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His sins. This would come to pass. The incarnation of Jesus is proof of that. Again, a text that I commend to your attention. Luke chapter 1, verses 67-79. through 79. This is where John the Baptist's father Zechariah talks about what the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be for His people. And he mentions in that text that He will rescue His people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. So because of the incarnation of the Son of God, we may live without fear or shame. We may live in freedom from sin's curse. And lastly today, we may live with assurance that God delights in us and is not ashamed to call us His own. As I've said to you, because Jesus came to be with us, He came to to answer this question. Could it be that I could be in right relation to God? Could it be that the Creator of all things could be for me? And that's exactly why Jesus is given this other title. Emmanuel. God is with us. And by implication, my friends, God is for us. Turn with me please to John chapter 1. Verse 11, John says, He came to His own, Jesus did, and His own people did not receive Him, speaking mostly of ethnic Jews here, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God sovereignly welcomes us in. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Who made God known? God made God known. God the Son made God the Father known to us. He became Emmanuel, God with us, to prove that God is for us. It's one of my favorite verses in Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, incarnation, real man, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
Notice how Jesus feels about those He came to die for. That is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus reconciled us to God. Jesus is Jacob's ladder back to God. Jesus is the one who restores us to the Father, rescues us from sin, frees us from sin, brings us back into relationship with our Creator. And so, my friends, today, the incarnation of the Son of God is proof of God's sovereign grace so that we may live without fear or shame. We may live in freedom from sin's curse and we may live with assurance that God delights in us and is not ashamed to call us His own. You would be lying if you told me you'd, you believe that all the time. It is, it is, it is my profession. I get paid just to study this, to know the ins and outs of this. And yet there are many, many days where I struggle to really believe that God could actually delight in me. But that's the proof of the incarnation. So my friends, are you sinners? Yes. If you've trusted Jesus, you are no longer under sin's penalty, but you still do things which break God's law. And I do too. But thanks be to God that He has sent His Son to rescue us from sin's penalty. And so I, I call on you today, those of you who have not trusted Jesus, who are seeking to barter with Him. There's two basic ways that people deal with sin. One is to dismiss it entirely. And in our culture, that's happening all the time, right? Morality is getting rewritten. Or, on the other hand, the other extreme, to try to come up with a system to find favor with God, to barter with Him. This first thing is trying to rewrite the rules, and you're not God. The second thing is trying to meet Him halfway, and you never can. I call on those of you who have not yet trusted Jesus to turn away from self-righteousness, from reasoning on your own, and to turn to Jesus in faith. But for all of us who have trusted Jesus, to believe that God actually does delight in us. He, today, my friends, is singing over us. Not because there's anything inherently good in us, but because His Son was not ashamed to call us brothers, and has brought us back into the family, and now He's dear Father. I'll close with this. My second son, Sam, um, is an athlete. He loves to play baseball. He can take a you know, 70 mile per hour pitch off of his hip, not cry, run down to first base. Uh, he's pretty tough. But he's also a little cuddler. He's a dichotomy. On the one hand, I get super proud of him when I'm coaching baseball and I watch him get hit with a baseball and not cry. I love that. makes me super proud as a dad. But I also love the other side of Sam when we sit down on the couch together and watch Christmas movies, which we love to do together. And he can't get close enough to me. Like He actually sits on my lap still. He's 11 years old. Um, he, he understands what it is to rest in a father that cares for him and loves him. And, and let me tell you, I am so imperfect. There are so many ways as a father, which my children will attest to, that I have room to grow. But I, I learn something when my little son cuddles up next to me. He knows as imperfect as his dad is that his dad loves him and will protect him and take care of him. And so I say to you, 
God the Father has sent His own Son who was not ashamed to call us brothers so that we might crawl up next to God and feel secure and safe. He's reverential. He's, he's holy. He's awesome. We will bow to Him one day. That's all true. But my friends, the incarnation of Jesus promises us and reminds us that we are dear children to Him. And so may this Advent season we reflect upon what has God done in His Son. He has freed us from fear and shame. He has given us freedom from sin's curse in all kinds of ways. And He has proven to us that He delights in us and is not ashamed to call us His own. Let's pray together.